Yeah, Ultimate Warrior. Ashes to ashes and dust to dust. What goes up must come down. Oh, yeah. You sort of high with the eagles, and now you must slither with the snakes. Because you challenged and said no to the Macho King. And that was your big mistake. Oh, yeah. Ultimate Warrior. You got a very small, minute taste of the kingdom of the madness when you lost your belt. Now, at WrestleMania 7, you ain't seen nothing yet. Oh, yeah, you ain't seen nothing yet. But that belt that I took, that title that I took, it wasn't yours to keep anyway. You wore it, but I always was. And nobody ever denied it, because I am what I am. And another notch in the belt of the Macho King is no problem. WrestleMania 7, Los Angeles. Let the building burn down, yeah. Let it all happen, and let it all happen in one night, yeah. Say goodbye to your career, oh yeah. Kiss it goodbye, the kiss of death. But you did it yourself, oh yeah. Years from now, you can tell everybody you got beat by the best that ever was. The Macho King, Randy Savage, oh yeah. Look in every direction, Macho King. Search all parts, all corners of your normal universe. Look above, but you will never see my gods. Look there, look over there, look down, for you shall see the skeletons of warriors that have already fallen. But you will not, Macho King, find what you are looking for. For at Royal Rumble, you came to take something away, but you left something much more valuable behind. Lodged in my skull, Macho King, was a piece of the crystal of your kingdom, your madness. That piece of crystal that you're searching for, that one last piece. They said, but warrior, it's lodged inside your skull. I said, sew it in. Leave it where it lays. If the man wants it, if the Macho King wants it, let him take it at WrestleMania 7. For within that one piece of crystal, Macho King, that you are so desperately seeking and searching for, lies all your past, lies your future, and lies today. I see you lie, Macho King. I see you lie at WrestleMania 7 before me as I stand. Not lay on top of you, but stand above you as I end your career. I mean, I guess, uh, let's see, the last time we did an episode was Santa Slay. It was the special, I think, Christmas episode for movies for guys who like movies. Wow. So, I guess since the last time we did a wrestling one, man. Yeah. Well, 
if it's taken me that long to figure it out, then it really has been that long. But if you're listening to this, welcome back. I'm William Rankin of the New Blood Rising podcast. This is a special episode that I wanted to put out. Uh, a perfect 10 episode. We haven't done one of these in a bit, even more so in our season five episodes. But I thought it would be fun just to finally get some content back out there and kind of use this as hopefully a a reset hopefully use this as a reset for where we're at here in 2020. Because I don't know if many of you have been thinking about this. It just really occurred to me over the last couple of days. This is our five-year anniversary. In fact, literally once March kicks around, I don't know the exact date in March, that's when we hit our, spe- our, our five years since we started doing this. It was in 2015, a long time ago. A lot of things were, were different back then, but... This episode was important. So real quick. So this episode, the perfect 10 episode we're going to be doing here today is with Macho Man Randy Savage versus the Ultimate Warrior, the career-ending match from WrestleMania 7. That's what we're going to be getting into a little bit later. I wanted to spend some time here in the open talking about, I don't want to call it state of the podcast because that's just a cliche. You hear, that's, no. If we were actually doing that, Charlie and Jason would be here. It'd be proper because the podcast is all three of us. So um, what I want to kind of give is just a little bit of, I'm not going to call even a peek behind the curtain. It's just, this is reality right now. Uh, We've been wanting to do episodes for a while. We've been wanting to. It is really hard because uh, this is a three-man pod, you know, for the most part. And with, you know, when Martin is in the fold, it is a four-man pod, like, uh, can it function with less than that? Of course. Could it function with just Jason and Charlie? Could it function with me and Charlie or me and Jason? Sure, absolutely. But one of the things I've been thinking about over the last, it's really been over the last six months or so, is like, what is what is the podcast long-term? You know, is it something that, uh, you know, what, where is it going? What are we doing? And the thing I come back to always is, I go back to 2015 when we started. Just really fitting that we're we're talking about that since we're talking about the five year anniversary. 2015 is when we started the podcast, and you know, I know this week, Burke. I think you were on Twitter. You're reaching out to a couple of us asking about starting up a podcast, and you know, fortunately, since 2015, it's gotten a lot easier. But you know, the hardest thing is really finding that good chemistry and finding a team. We are a team, and when I go back and think about when we started, you know, we got lucky. We got picked up by a couple networks. I was laughing because I was remembering the first one was, ironically, with somebody named Gary, which would, of course, become a great joke for us later when it came to Shane Douglas. But we also got picked up, very fortunately, by what was called the OSW Podcast Network. And whatever, like, truly its affiliation was with Jay and with OSW, I'm not that positive, but it was really, really... It was a great opportunity for us to be able to get on a podcast feed, to be able to get our episodes out, and it really helped us cultivate a following. I remember specifically, though, I was asked to do a, a guest spot. Well, not even a guest. It was just a hit, basically, on, I guess, like their, the main OSW Podcast Network show. And one of the first questions, you know, after, you know, what's the podcast about? And it's like, oh, okay, yeah, we're doing WCW. We want to do the bad stuff, which... I'm always very proud of that, the fact that we actually globbed on to like doing something that's considered the worst and really trying to find the good stuff in it. But that's beside the point. The second thing I was asked was, um, how did this come together? 
Now, I'm not positive they were expecting the answer I gave, but I, I still remember it to this day. And that was, I wanted to have what would be the equivalent of the card game that the generations before us had, where guys would get together on like Sundays or whatever in their basement with cigars and beer and, and you know, cards and sit around a table and they just they just talk to each other. They would just enjoy just sort of this break from reality and they'd be having fun. And in 2015, when we were getting this thing started, I was wondering, what does that feel like? And I was also thinking about, as I was at that point, we, I think my wife and I found out we, it was really like before we started the podcast, it only been about three months since we knew we were expecting our first child. And, you know, for any of you out there that have have had a child, like you know, like that moment you learn that you're having a child, everything changes. Like your mind in your mind, I mean, at least I mean, literally, we know things change. But I'm talking about in your mind in terms of how you sort of see the next plot points of your life, point A to point B, C, D, and E, where there's going to be a left turn, a right turn, wherever you start to think about all that now through the lens of being a parent. And one of the things I thought about that I really wanted my child, I didn't know if it was a, I don't think we knew it was a boy yet then, but I wanted my child or my children, I wanted them to have some type of record, like literally something they could either, something they could listen to where they could hear their dad when they were young, when he was younger with his friends having a great time because I never had that opportunity with my dad and I'm pretty sure most of us didn't unless like we were, they were fortunate enough to do a lot of home, home movies or something. Um, depending on your age, but I just really wanted to have something like that. And again, it's focused around like, I'm with my friends. I, I mean, I like doing these pods here. These are fun because it kind of flexes a different muscle trying to do a solo pod. And believe me, I, I can riff all day with Charlie. We've done it. We've lived together. We've done, I can't tell you how many podcasts without recording equipment over the phone and in person. It's awesome. I've had similar experiences with Jason. The most fun, though, is when it's all three of us. And the reason I, I wanted to reference that story is because it's we are always trying to shoot to do episodes with all three of us together because that's when the podcast really does have its... I mean, you guys have heard them, and you guys probably remember them better than we do, but, like, the Nacho Guy from season one, that's one of the best bits in the history of the show. Not to sound pretentious, like we have like some like you know, deep catalog. Look, you know, we have over 100 episodes, but let's face it, we're not like as deep as some of the others. But, you know, that episode really stands out to this day. Like when Jason did that blow by blow of it, Charlie and I could not stop laughing. Like it caught us so off guard because it wasn't something we'd really focus on during the match. And Eagle Eye Jason picked it up and it was amazing. Or like I've, I'm trying to think it was it may have been Rumble 2. I think was when the Earl Hebner, we, we, we put him into Rocky five and it became just this bit that we just kept building on and building on and building on. And then you guys know, like best of luck spot last year, that goodbye cactus, goodbye, my friend. Oh my God. Like that, 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 that was a reference that Charlie and I had made like years ago that was like stuck in the back of our heads. But the fact that it just popped up on the show with all three of us, I mean, you can hear it. I mean, it takes over the whole show in a really great way. Those are that's the most fun when it comes to doing these shows. Like watching the wrestling is great, revisiting is great, but getting to do it with my friends 
is really, really important. I love those guys. It is, uh, I can't tell you based on the fact of where I'm at in my life, like how important it is to be able to have those types of experiences still just because, you know, life getting up at 5.30 a.m. every day to get the day started, you know, breakfast for kids, getting everybody together, putting laundry away, dishes, all the different chores that you know many of you know exactly what I'm talking about doing, it, it, it's taxing. And that's what makes doing these things fun. Again, I say all this because the reason we've struggled trying to get content out there is because we really are aiming to do as many of the three-man shows as we can. We've also come to the conclusion that that may not always be possible. And we're having to kind of, uh, you know, we're having to try and we're trying to set some dates in the future and seeing how things work out. And it may not always be possible for us to be a three-man group, but we have to try to do that as much as we can. And at the same time, we have to try and get content out there. What I consider my goal for this year five that we're in now, and season five for that matter, is I really want us to have an episode, at least one episode a month in the season going through the catalog of shows. Right now we're uh, in 1992, we're talking about our From Sting to Hogan season. That is the goal, to be able to do that. So that's something I'm trying to hold myself to, and I want both Jason and Charlie to hold not only themselves, but me too as well, because that is really important. It's important because, believe me, I can't tell you how much it pains me when I see a tweet that says, uh, we miss you guys, we're hoping to get an episode soon, and it's tough to really do a reply there because you know like, you don't have an exact answer yet, and you don't want to give some BS answer. So... It was a long-winded. That went about 10 minutes there just going through that. I know. But I just felt it was important for you guys to know that. So we are aiming for the first weekend in March to do an episode. I am hoping it's all three of us. That is the goal as we just, as I just harangued for a while there. But we'll see what happens. Okay. We know that next episode is Great American Bash 92. So that's what we're shooting for. So get ready for it. We also, I also believe that weekend is when I had pegged the uh, the deadline for nominations for the Best of Luck spot. Or, you know, we should probably just call it the Ryan Palmer uh, uh, Memorial Hall of Fame because I swear, like, I, I applaud people like Ryan that keep plugging out, plugging with um, uh, Best of Luck spot Hall of Fame tweets. I'll tell you, man, the catalog so far, and I see them, they are deep. The Centon with the Fireworks... That's intense, man. Um, you know, I don't, I don't know where you come back from that. There are a couple that I'm just like, that's 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 got to go in. There's no doubt about it. But you know, we'll see. Again, first weekend of March. That's what we're shooting for. We're gonna do the, um, we're gonna do Great American Bash '92, and I'm hoping that you know, if if we can squeeze in another episode a month, awesome. If not, you know, I'm gonna keep talking with um, with Jason and Charlie about trying to get is more. If we have to do episodes like this. Maybe there are some special episodes that we'll try and pump out there, but the goal is to try and get back to getting content out there because a lot of you have hit, hit subscribe on our feed for a reason, and it doesn't mean anything unless there's content there for you to consume. So that's what we've got to do. All right, uh, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, it's time to talk about the next entry in the Perfect Ten series. It's the Macho King. I think I messed that up earlier. Macho King. Randy Savage versus the Ultimate Warrior career ending match, WrestleMania 7. All right, so we're back. This is actually my second take with this because. So I got done with the episode. I spent about, I don't know how long, 
and I'm going through editing it and I you know, split it into its two pieces and for the first time ever I, f I finally lost an episode I'm glad I lost and it was just me but it's a bummer because now we're going to go back through here and redo this second part where we actually talk about this match I was really happy with how that last one turned out but you know these things happen um, I'm not going to quit we're going to do it again and hopefully do this one better hopefully uh, I also do my sequence correctly and I save all this correctly so to where I don't lose it again but uh, after I did an opening like that uh, I have to push through so here we go let's talk about it Macho King Randy Savage versus the Ultimate Warrior from WrestleMania 7 so of all the per of the perfect tens I've done thus far I've done a couple the Bret Hart Mr. Perfect SummerSlam 91 Cena and Lesnar from SummerSlam of 2014 this match I think has so many pieces with it there's so much nuance there are so many broad forms of storytelling this there's it's just such a multifaceted match it's pretty undeniable I think to in terms of where it rests in the hierarchy of all-time great wrestling matches I think it's hard to exclude this one from where it belongs in the upper echelon for reasons I'm going to get into in this the way I want to tackle this is twofold in terms of because I always want to do the background I want to I, I want to bring us into this match here a little bit a lot of people know the backstory with this. It's cool, but you know, if we're going to be really just kind of ground up with this, like go through the whole thing step by step for those who may not, let's do it and let's enjoy the ride together. We need to talk about first storyline-wise how we get here, but then I want to bring in the personal side of it because that's important. Why we love wrestling is equally as important as why we think the wrestling is good in the ring. Like, and I mean by why we love it, like what is around us, what's going on in our personal life, what are our memories from when we saw that particular show that stuff matters it matters a lot so i want to tackle that first let's talk about storylines the macho king randy savage no longer the macho man uh, i believe it was somewhere after wrestlemania 5 after he dropped the belt to hogan he defeats hacksaw jim duggan who was the current king of the ring imagine that and he anoints himself the macho king randy savage with sensational sherry as uh, his manager so uh this is an interesting moment for Savage, and it's an interesting moment for a, uh, a key WWF character because we see this happen to where we have a top wrestling talent, in this case a villain, and inevitably in pro wrestling, the top wrestling villain has to be vanquished by the top wrestling babyface. That is the most base form of pro wrestling, is good versus evil, it's the great hero defeating the great villain. And the thing that happens, though, is the we begin to wonder what happens to the villains once they are vanquished because wrestling doesn't never stops. It is year-round. There are no seasons. There's none of that. It's just always happening. I think this, uh, this is not a rant, but I think it's something that we need to, as a collective wrestling whole, think about is not everybody can be in the main event at the same time. I know that seems, like, really redundant. Like, that's a real easy thing to say and we all should pretty much know that but I think we lose track of that sometimes because we'll see guys who come out and maybe they job within 30 seconds when maybe a month ago they were in line for a title shot they were a champion somewhere around there but now I mean look you, not everybody can be Paul Newman 
right? Not everybody's the hustler. Sometimes you're the guy who's in the background watching the hustler, okay? Your turn comes. I know from acting, from doing stage work, sometimes, you know what, hey man, sometimes you're uh, you're Macbeth, and then sometimes you're the guy who has to come in and give Macbeth news. I mean, that role is important. You are exposition. You are helping further, uh, you're helping further the story and you're helping build your your star at the moment. Everyone's a function. And that's important when it comes to these these villains because then what becomes their function? And what becomes with their character is more important because we've seen people like Bray Wyatt lose. When we saw him lose at WrestleMania 30, never the same. Never the same. I, I don't, with the exception of that one incredible moment where I think it was, for like it felt like for a night he was a babyface where he and Reigns were tagged up and he does like almost like this gun motion, like he's calling for a spear, bam, out and like into the frame. It's perfect framing. Here comes Reigns, spear somebody. And it looked really cool. But other than that, he was pretty much cooked after that Cena loss. And he didn't didn't figure out a way to pivot. Now he's the fiend. We'll see where this goes for him and sort of the reimagining of his character. Savage did a neat pivot. Not a lot changed with him, but when you add that royal moniker to any character. Boy, does it really bump up their heel status. I mean, it really builds some massive heat for them. So, um, Savage, after uh, after he goes through and does the match with Hogan, or, or, we're already past that. Once he's Macho King, I think like his WrestleMania 6 is not... It's not incredible. I mean, I think he's into a, a, a mixed tag match that features, that features Sherry, him and Sherry versus Dusty and Sapphire. Okay, you know, probably not what most people who are fans of Savage necessarily want. It was what it was. Then in the fall is where they, they kind of they light him back up again. And that's when he first attacks the Warrior. He wants a title shot. That is what he wants. And he's just doing whatever he can to get it. It peaks in January at the Royal Rumble 91 where Warrior comes out earlier in the show to do a, a promo with Mean Gene in front of the crowd. Sherry comes out, and whew, it gets a little hot. Uh, not going to lie. And I you know, I forgot that you know she basically, like, <laughs> she comes as close as she can to start flating him, I swear. It's wild. She's begging the warrior to give Savage a title shot. And he says no, and it's a big to-do, and she's all, uh, you know, miffed about it. And then later on the night, Savage is defending the WWF title against Sergeant Slaughter, the the this uh, this new heel version of Slaughter, where he's an Iraqi sympathizer. During Desert Storm, yeah, we all know how that went over. Um, so they're in the middle of the match. Savage, uh, or I'm sorry, Sherry comes out, distracts Warrior. Warrior chases after her, and then right as he's about to get his hands on her, bet. They're savage, and Savage just unloads on him. And it leads to later, the warrior, uh, the referee's distracted with Slaughter, and Savage just cracks him over the head with this scepter. It is an all-time weapon shot because it, it definitely makes an audible sound that feels real. Like, I mean, we, we know it's all gimmicked up and stuff, but, whew, man, it's a brutal shot. And Slaughter's able to pick up the win. Warrior drops the title at Royal Rumble... Doesn't hold it quite a year, and uh, it sets into motion a really just blood feud between him and Macho King. 
and the stakes get raised as like you know their um, warriors just trying to get his revenge. It builds to a point where a match is set, and it's not just any match. It's it is a career-ending match, which uh, I'm going to reference it a lot on the show here. I listened uh, j- to try and get some as much perspective as I can and like real perspective. I look, I don't want to read just another jabroni like myself talking about why they like the match. Like trying to get people from the the time period, people will talk about it. There is some good, like pr- pretty interesting storytelling from Bruce Pritchard on a podcast with Conrad. You've all probably already heard it, to be honest. You probably already downloaded and listened to it a while ago. But I found it fascinating to review it for this match and um, him talking about how this this was, and I think commentary mentions it too, probably the first high-profile match of this kind. Obviously, Loser Leaves Town matches were a staple of regional promotions back in the day, but on this level for the WWF, this had not this hadn't been done before. So... The Warrior. Let's talk about Ultimate Warrior because he wins the match of matches. Like his probably his arguably his number two match is uh, not, or I don't know. It's it's tough to say. There's some people that would say probably WrestleMania six is his most memorable match. There are people like me who think WrestleMania seven carries a little bit more weight and thus um, is more memorable. But nevertheless, WrestleMania six. The ultimate challenge. He defeats Hulk Hogan for the WWF title. A huge moment. He is the guy. And he then moves into a feud with Rick Rude. It's a great continuation of their feud for the Intercontinental title. Great chemistry together. And then, as we talked about in the fall with Savage, uh, you also we, have, uh, we see Warrior in the Survivor Series, him and Hogan come out victorious against all the heels. It's really cool pay-per-view for that. Like, it's... It's a it's a well booked Survivor Series where you have the two guys you want to see the most back to back against the world. There you go. And then obviously we talked about the uh, the match with Slaughter. So you know some of this is a bit of a repeat, but you know it does bear mentioning that Warrior was supposed to carry that torch, and for many reasons, you know some that have to do with behind the scenes kind uh, behind the scenes conflict, and I. I'm not going to confirm this, but it's at least a possibility that the maybe the towns weren't looking too good. Maybe the houses weren't looking as good as they were with, with Hogan having the belt. Nevertheless, the decision is made to take the belt off him. We've got to get the belt back to Hogan. And that's where Slaughter comes in as that transitional champion. Um, so, again, I talk about you know, the storyline is important. What brings us, What brings us to the match? In terms of literally, how did how did WWF script this to happen? On the personal side, for me, the Ultimate Warrior, anything has to do with Ultimate Warrior is it isn't it holds a special place for me. And I know he is a complicated character and person because, especially as a person, because let's face it, there are things that he has said that there are a, a lot of people don't necessarily agree with, are quite offended by were bad enough to where people kind of wrote him off for years. Uh, obviously, his 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 behind-the-scenes reputation, by the time the Internet's really kicking up and now things are starting to spread around about wrestlers, true or untrue, but they're out there, dirt sheets, all of it. You know, there's that, there's that Self-Destruction Ultimate Warrior DVD that, that was put out. You know, not the most popular type of thing. Probably not the wisest decision on the WWF's part to put out there. But he's a complicated guy. Like, a guy on the surface, and when you're a kid, is just a specimen. 
But then as a person, as you get older, you're like, I don't know what the, I don't know what to think about this guy. I say all that because he does as a character, as the guy, literally the, the person in the ring, not so much maybe what's outside of it. Um, he holds a special place because he was my dad's favorite wrestler. Um, there are about four things I would say that like I really had a strong bond with uh, with my dad about. Um, and I know that's a weird thing to say, but my dad passed away when I was 11. So we didn't have in the end that much time to really, you know, to get to know each other in the end. Like uh, uh, being 11 years old, like I really, I mean, I definitely was not as, I wasn't fully developed in terms of like good conversation, things I liked, things I didn't like, whatever. But when it came to things like Star Wars, Star Trek, Top Gun, and wrestling, like those were things that like, those were go-to things for us. And we played video games together. Like, like I think we played, um, I remember he bought a TurboGrafx-16. Like that was our system together. And um, we would play games like Bloody Wolf, I remember, like, uh, I'd come home from school and he'd tell me, like, what was the next thing, the next parts of the game, and it was all exciting, and he'd walk me through it. I, it's crazy I was playing that game. Like, I was probably, like, eight or seven when I was playing that, but great times. And wrestling was a great thing, and he loved the Warrior. I was a Hogan guy, so um, uh, it was interesting coming into WrestleMania seven, like, you know, with the two big matches on the card. Um but yeah, he was such a big, big warrior guy. I remember, uh, I used to, I used to laugh at like how excited he'd get about warrior wrestling. And I tried to always, and over the years, you know, as you go back and you try to reexamine things that you, you saw or you thought about as a younger person, like applying, like, you know, your worldly knowledge, trying to, trying to answer questions that were left unanswered. Like, why did he like this guy so much? And, you know, various reasons. So obviously the warrior is just a charismatic character. It's, it's, possible to deny that i also used to think about you know my dad liked him because uh you know he was just impressed with just like his physique my dad was uh uh, six two you know what buck 60 buck 70 buck 80 i I don't know for sure a farm a farm kid from nebraska became a doctor in the navy like you know he was uh, just basically uh people probably say he's always a scrawny farm boy and stuff like that but then, of course, like, you know, my dad's a doctor. I, the irony is he was a big smoker. <laughs> I, you know, how that happened, whatever, I don't know. Eventually he quits. He quits, and, like, what happens to a lot of people when you quit smoking, you start gaining weight because you're replacing that oral fixation. So my dad, to offset that, started working out a lot. He was at the gym a lot. I remember, uh, and I, I remember seeing the workout gloves, the, the, the fanny packs, the all the bags, like 50 zippers. I don't even, I, I didn't know the, it was all way over my head. I was honestly, I, I was never, I was not into to working out or any of that. So like, I just, I just had to laugh, but I always remember like he, he was always impressed with just the look of the warrior. And then I remember, um, he, uh, one of my favorite memories was when we did, we did face paint. Like he put the, he put, he dressed me up I did not know Sting yet. There, there, I had no concept of who Sting was by the time I was eight years old. I still didn't know. I wouldn't know until I moved down to South Carolina because that's where WCW was more of a hotbed. Uh, he painted my face like Road Warrior Hawk, and he did his like the Warrior. It was really cool. It was just something really fun that we we um, we did together. Um, so that's why Warrior. Anything has to do with him, like his particular is is it, 
it does have a special place in my heart. And it's always now weird just thinking about like the circumstance around his death and it's just it was one of those like it's not like I not like I knew the guy, but it's sort of like when when Kobe passed and when all these people passed that like, you know, you you have this attachment to in terms of pop culture and entertainment like it hits you in a weird way. Like and it's not always explainable, but it's just there, but um I was we we were pumped for this. This was a pay-per-view that I think was I'm going to say it was I think it was the first pay-per-view we ordered. Um, I did not get to see this match when it like when it happened live. I had to go to bed. It was a school night, of course, uh, or it was Sunday night school next day and everything. And uh, oh, I just remember how excited he was to tell me what happened the next day. I didn't care about spoilers. I was going to watch. I, I watched that tape of, like so many times. My dad taped that off a of pay-per-view. I watched that. Uh, I watched the hell out of that tape along that with SummerSlam 91 as well. Just watch both of those all the time back to back. But uh, yeah, yeah. This 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 one is particular. I'm particularly fond of this. Um, so now let's talk about the match itself. Let's start off with the uh, the entrances. I get well. I guess well just before it starts, Eagle Eye Bobby Heenan. So you got Heenan and Gorilla on commentary. Eagle Eye Bobby Heenan. I, you know, <laughs> he's not looking at a monitor, or maybe he might have been before the shot they cut to him. He likes spots like on the other side of the arena, on the on the aisle, a seat on the aisle, front row. It's Miss Elizabeth, which is fascinating because Elizabeth hadn't been around. You know, after the split with Macho Man, she disappeared. She wasn't there, and so it was like, Ooh, "What's what is she doing here?" Well, it makes sense in a way. This is a huge match for for Randy, like this. Is possibly the end of his uh, career, so it, you know it. It makes sense that she would be there. There's some, there's some backstory to that. So you have that to start. Then you have the set. You have the entrance of Macho King. The Macho King comes out, sitting on a throne beside the sensational Sherry, and it's being carried on top of like this plank by these six jobbers and they're not even in costumes they're in their gear like literally they're going to take him down to the ring and then i don't know get a taxi together and then go down to manhattan beach maybe have a battle royal or sorts they're going to make the 10 o'clock show i i don't know but it's it's just funny because nowadays those people would be in these costumes it would be this elaborate entrance and all this 1991 hey man not in the budget so uh why don't you put your singlet on and uh don't drop randy Okay, just don't drop Randy. So they they take them down to the ring. Then the Warriors music. Oh, well, like Savage's outfit. Look, of course, like on uh, you know on the Bret Hart scale, the, uh, the Bret Hart scale was three categories: look, wrestling ability, and promo. Uh, Savage maximizes all three. He is an easy thirty, no doubt about it. Uh, in terms of the look, like what I was always impressed with the look is just his use of color, like the the balance of color between his gear, uh, his head his headband piece with his glasses and his trunks. In this particular case, he's got a silver, blue, and white kind of look. It in a way it mirrors the color scheme of the WrestleMania logo, which was more of the red, white, and blue because of the uh, the Iraqi War and everything going on. But um, he looks he looks awesome. So then the Warriors music hits. And you know when the Warriors music hits, like you're just ready for him to come screaming out of that tunnel. 
like a missile just bolting toward the ring, jumping up on the apron, just um, uh, just shaking the ropes. I mean, just a house of fire. But nothing happens. And then you're waiting. You wait like, it's like five seconds and 10 and 15 and the camera goes back to the hard cam. It switches back, but he's not coming out yet. And it's like, what's going on? And then there he is. He's, he comes through the curtain with this big neon colored duster. He's got the neon colored trunks, uh, knee pads, the face paint. It's, it's a great contrast to what Randy is wearing in the ring. And he has this very slow, I'm not going to say very slow, he has this methodical march to the ring. People are trying to grab onto him, he's shaking it loose, and he's just locked on savage. Now, on the one hand, on a practical side, of course, like it's probably not a great idea to sprint to the ring when you're about to go 21 minutes with, with Randy Savage. Because we all know the, the, the joke about Warrior being the fact that he was blown up by the time he got to the ring. Uh, you know, maybe he wanted to save a little bit in the tank to be able to go, go, um, go a while with Randy. So, um, yeah, that's probably that's probably true. I also like to think about it from a psychological aspect. Like, it's it's a really interesting choice because it just shows that there's a seriousness, there's a seriousness to this match for him. And then when he gets in the ring and he takes the duster off, you see his trunks on the back of it. It says, means more than this, and it's the title belt. This is an interesting topic in the Conrad and Bruce Pritchard uh, pod, or the clip that you can find on YouTube, where Conrad asks, is that, is that a dig towards the main event? Like, this match means more than the main event of the show. I think Pritchard kind of shrugs that off like that's, probably going a little too deep with it. I mean, who knows? I mean, we can read into anything with it. Um, on the base level of it, like if we're not going to think about anything that has to do with trolling or anything, um, it does, like it's the careers on the line. The career probably means more than the title itself. So it made sense. It just looked really cool that like there was this thought that Savage had put into it. And then he's got on his knee pads. He has himself on one, Savage on the other. Like it just has that, that, that look and that feel to it. Something that we, of course, we've seen to some extent with Rick Rude, the way he would customize his trunks uh, before matches. So you see Warrior just in, in the ring here, and you see how Savage is kind of, you know, uh, very tactical. Like, he, like, what they great about Savage working heel is, like, he, there was definitely a, a, a change to how he would wrestle as a babyface. And, it's, I mean, it's, it's very prototypical, uh, heel wrestling here where it's like yeah you're he's going to not confront the face directly he's going to try and cheap shot him he's going to try and sneak attack him he's going to try and lure him to the outside and he lures him so that sherry can uh, either distract him so savage can ambush him or savage will kind of grab the ref sherry can try and slap him kick him do her thing um warrior at one point pushes her to the ground it's a, whoa it jumps out at you real quick but it you know they move on from that pretty quick but he um Savage had, uh, it's at first the Warriors got the upper hand with this. You know, Warriors able, able to uh, just, it, what's impressive is like as, as limited as his moveset was, like what he did do was very effective. Those clubbing right hands, whether it was a, a club on the back, maybe it was a, um, uh, a clothesline, 
you know, his clotheslines, like, it, I mean, it was like a log was hitting you in the neck and the chest area. Yeah, this isn't a Stan Hansen Larry. It's not a Steiner line. You know, it's not Bradshaw with the clothesline from hell, but it's a very effective looking old school clothesline. And he dominates early. Now, I mean, this is a 21 minute match. When I say dominates, like, I mean, like, it, it, he's in firm control for the first, like, four to five minutes of this thing. And then, of course, like, the. Sherry's able to eventually tilt it back in Savage's favor to where Savage is able to, you know, start to... And it's remarkable watching how does how does Randy Savage attack it. You know, he's got one of the best right hands in the business, but what really made Savage special, and this is why he earns that full 10 on that Bret Hart scale, is he was a unique... He was unique in the fact that he was a heavyweight wrestler. He was clearly in uh, working heavyweight. But at the same time, almost had a, a movement and an athleticism that lent towards more of a light heavyweight or a cruiserweight. Now, he's not, you know, Randy Savage isn't doing a 619 or, or, or a 450 splash, but he knew how to use aerial attacks against someone like the Ultimate Warrior. Top rope, um, you see him hitting uh, uh, the double axe handle, top rope, whether it's an inside the ring, outside the ring. You see him jumping with his knee just to pop the warrior. It's really effective, and it's cool because you know, this this isn't the way Hulk Hogan wrestled. It's not the way Andre certainly wrestled. It's not the way Jake Jake the Snake really wrestles. So it's it's it just so just leans again towards like this guy was in a class in a league of his own. Just the way he he carried himself. So. Savage being in control eventually builds to uh, after you know a couple couple two counts, couple one and a half counts. Eventually, Savage's control in the match leads to uh, what feels like is going to be the finish. I feel like this is somewhere around you know twelve to twelve to maybe twelve minutes. I don't know the exact timestamp on it. Savage builds the his, the elbow drop, right? And the elbow drop is a, it's just one of the greatest things to watch. You know, no matter what era of Randy Savage, even when he was, you know, really jacked up by the his, end of his run in WCW and he was doing it and like <laughs> I think he I think he collapsed Charles Robinson's lung <laughs> one time when he did it cuz it was just so much weight coming down on it. That uh that elbow is a thing of beauty. And what was interesting was he not only he hits the first one, you're like, oh crap, Warriors finished. He's gonna go for the cover, but he doesn't. He goes back to the top rope and he does it again and again and again. And then finally he does it a fifth time. And you're like, whoa, man. Like, you know, again, that's that's something you may see more in a, a like probably by the end of the decade into the 2000s. Nowadays, you'd see multiple finishers like that in a match, but you just didn't see this often. Like, Hogan wasn't Hogan wasn't having to hit two leg drops to win a match. Jake the Snake isn't hitting two DDTs. So the fact that we're seeing this, it's like this, this feels like something different. And the crowd doesn't really... I mean, the, the crowd just is feeling that they're just like, oh, man, this is it. Warrior's done. And then Savage goes for the cover, and then... Hebner gets the two, and credit to the Warrior. Credit to him how he does this. You know, he could have easily done a, a big kick out, and he starts grabbing the rope, warring up the band, the band or whatever, and he's good to go. But no, he barely sneaks out of it. It's very well-timed. 
to where it's so close. Savage pops up immediately, and you can see him um, wide-eyed and wondering, like, what's it going to take? Like, it's like Jim Ross piping in, what's it going to take to put this man away? And uh, despite the fact that he hit those five elbows, Warrior was able to get back into the match. You see Warrior then go back on the offensive, and then it leads to Warrior getting to his finish. He does the big press, boom, bounces off the ropes, jumps up, splash on the back of Randy, turns him over, covers him, one, two, and then uh, Savage kicks out. Man, whoa. I'm that's so now you've seen two finishes that have been that 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 have been uh well the opponents kicked out of. And you're just like, geez, I mean, what I mean again, what's it gonna take? And the way Warrior sells this is, I, I, it's a little comical. Like, what's, what's he doing here? But he starts to look up at the, at the, um, at the heavens. He's looking around. He's looking at his hands. Like he's looking for answers. Uh, you can probably insert some funny dialogue of your own. Like I was thinking, is it Denny's for me tonight, or do I go to the Sizzler? What is the answer? And he just keeps going back and forth, talking to himself. Looking at his hands, looking, at his, and then like he starts to, you know, walk toward the ropes, and he starts to, he starts to get out of the ring, and Hebner's like, "Yo, uh, hey man, um, you know, if you leave, it's over." Like he, he really breaks it down, like it's almost like it's a child, and the Warriors just kind of like, ah, just really doesn't care. Savage then just has now collected himself and he gets back into control of him. And you see Savage then just uh, uh, taking it a warrior again on the outside. And he sets up like one of his classic. This is a great callback to, uh, I believe we've seen him do this with Steamboat. Because I think this is, I think it's with him. But anyway, even it, I think Savage, he's done this spot before. It's one of his signatures. Is whale on the guy enough. On the outside, you get him draped over that guardrail, and then he climbs the top rope and hits a double axe handle on it. It's basically just going to collapse your chest on that bar. And Sherry's there to hold him, and then Warrior breaks out of it. Savage crashes into that security rail. And you hear that sound. Like, it's a good thing Randy's got the, um, uh, he's got his forearms taped because, man, he eats it. I mean, big time eats it. So then the warrior starts to get the, the advantage back. He looks at the hands and I have found the answer. It is in and out burger for me. And he's back in the match. He resumes control. He gets the upper hand. And now we're, we're trucking. We're building the momentum. And then we get to um, Warrior's kind of sick. This is his 1B finisher, I guess. Was uh, Bounces off one ropes, comes off the other. And this jumping, diving shoulder block into the chest, you know, shoulder, head area of the opponent, hit Savage. And I can't say enough, like, it, it, as much as we criticize the Warriors in ring work, the guy could summon some pretty impressive athleticism, especially when he would do that, when he would when he would fly himself a little bit, you know, not from the top rope necessarily, but when he would jump, he is, like, horizontal. It's like Rodman going for a rebound out of bounds or something, a loose ball. And you see Warrior flying through the air that... That um, impressive mane of hair 
flapping behind him. The tassels, the um, the boot tassels too. I mean, you just see it. He's just horizontal. Pops Randy. Randy does this awesome bump where he is. Uh, he puts a little lift behind it and launches himself out of the ring. They do this again. They do this three times before Warrior finally brings him back into the ring, rolls him over. He puts his foot over his chest, and Hebner counts the one, two, three. And I'm, I swear to you, it, it, it's, it feels like anticlimactic because you don't, you, you just don't see people lose that way in wrestling, and you definitely don't see baby faces do it. I mean, yeah, here, here we go, folks. Here's your uh, WCW NWO revenge moment of the night where we have to bring up that game again, but. Uh, I know Bo, Charlie, and Jason know I'm talking about here. Like, if you use Chris Jericho in that game, you had to at least once during the match, and maybe even to win it, body slam your opponent and do the uh, the pinfall where you put your boot over the chest and pose. It's a heel thing to do, and yet the Warriors doing it to Savage. I, I'm. It's impressive because when you, th- I, I like that. Um, I like that Pritchard mentions this that like. He didn't necessarily agree with it, but he's convinced that it was Rand, like Randy was the one who thought of it and went with it, or or decided to to go along with it for the finish. That's a hell of a thing for a professional wrestler at the caliber and the ego of Randy Savage to do. There aren't a lot of guys that are gonna a let their finish just get killed. He did five top rope elbows and that couldn't beat a guy, and then he lets the guy beat him and like and I mean semi embarrassing insulting wages i'm gonna put my foot on your chest and get the three count it's i i mean it's definitely it's it's a moment it's an image to see that uh the three count hits to credit the crowd you know i i don't think really saw it coming so they it takes a second before they they pop big and the crowd's into this match like give them huge credit like they are into this the whole time um you know i, I you can make an argument about are, are there bigger pops in this match than the main event? I don't know. I mean, anytime Hogan is hulking up after being put down by a bad guy, like, I mean, the the crowd's going to go crazy for that. So that that's we don't need to have that argument here. Warrior wins a match. He he goes immediately to the outside. He puts on his his duster, goes back in the ring, poses again, and then leaves. And you're like, okay, well that was fun. That was a good time, right? That was 21 minutes, bell to bell, good match, right? Is it? I mean, does the match maintain a 10 out of 10 if you just strictly go bell to bell? I don't know. It's hard to divorce that from what happens next. All right, so we saw Elizabeth, and one thing I give them credit, like the all the little things in this match are really strong, and one of those things that's strong is the fact that they don't. They don't cut to Elizabeth relentlessly. That happens a lot nowadays, I think, where there's somebody who's planted in the crowd and they like to go back and they keep going back to the point where it's just like, yo, man, I I really don't care. Like, that's awesome. I'm so happy that Tyson Fury's here. Uh, Can we get back to the match, please? You know, stuff like that. So Elizabeth um, has been watching the match. Doing some great facials, great acting on her own to kind of sell the desperation that and the, and the feelings of uh, the conflicted feelings that she's got watching Randy out there. With the match over, though, Sensational Sherry gets in the ring and she is pissed. She is pissed off. She then like starts kicking Randy and the crowd, boo! They're, they're, they're putting a lot of heat on her. 
She's kicking him. Then she picks up his head and starts smashing into the ground. Randy does a great job of selling for you. Watch like how he is able to maneuver his body so it looks like those kicks are really, really laying in, really doing some damage. And it's cool because the last time they cut to Liz, like she's had enough. And she gets over that guardrail. And I'll tell you, takes off for that ring. Like, you know, she's not dressed to wrestle. And she books it to that ring. She's able to get in there quick. She grabs Sherry and then just throw it. It's a, it's a great dump out. And it's a credit to both of them. Really need to take a moment here. Both of these women are MVPs of, of, of WWF at this time. Because there are, it's hard to say there are any valets that come after them that are at their level, whether it's face or heel. I mean, Elizabeth is in an unbelievable class of her own because you're talking about somebody who at one point was the uh, a baby face herself, but the manager of the biggest heel in the company. That happens so rarely nowadays. And the thing is, storytelling becomes so uh, impatient to where they would want to do something with that so quickly to where it wouldn't let it necessarily have time to fester, to let it burn, let it develop. Sherry, I don't know if there's somebody who is, uh, you know what? All right. The, I would say the modern compliment to her, and I'm not saying they're necessarily on the same level, but they're cut from similar cloth. If you look at the way Vicky Guerrero was always up for, I mean, outrageous stunts that would make her look like such a fool. And she would do such a good job of going all in and doing it. That's always the, I'll tell you what, you guys are there to do improv. You know what I'm talking about? Like if you are, the key to improv is, is you say yes. You say yes because that helps build the act. That helps, um, when you go along with your fellow actor, like it really, again, just helps both of you when you have to kind of give in and go with them for a bit. Sherry does such a good job in multiple matches even outside of this, before this, and then definitely after, where she will take crazy bombs. She'll let her clothes just get ripped out. She'll um, she'll have she'll scream. She'll beg and plead for mercy and everything. And you know, try not to get hit by the 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 baby face, even though that's weird to even say that that they're attacking a woman. But you know what I mean. Like she does such a good job of being like uh, of 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 being a coward, but then being yeah, I just I. It's one of those things I get older and I appreciate like some of these aspects of, of wrestling. It's it really is managers like this that were really willing to just do so much, not to necessarily get themselves over, but to get over the talent they were managing. So I just wanted to mention that for both of them. She tosses Sherry out of the ring. Savage does not know what's been going on. He just knows he's been getting his ass kicked. He has no idea apparently who's been doing it. Maybe he just can't hear Sherry yelling and screaming at him. But he turns around and then boom, he's on guard because he sees Elizabeth. And it's like, you know, Ooh, what are you what are you doing here, Liz? Ooh. And um you see Hebner on the outside. Sherry's just like, she's thrown out of the ring, doesn't matter. He's having to hold her back so she doesn't get in the ring and just keep wanting to go after Randy. And Randy's starting to like a like a real uh, Philip Marlowe sleuth here puts uh, puts it all together that you know maybe it was Sherry, believe it or not, who was wailing on him. So she exits and then like it's just this weird moment where Savage is really conflicted because obviously the history with Liz, how things went down, how things ended, not great. She is getting emotional and he's kind of like pulling his hair out. He's looking at the the crowd. 
I don't know with the exception, with the exception of maybe Hogan. I don't know if anybody had better facials to the crowd and could could get something from the crowd without having said a word. All they have to do is just look. He's maybe he's looking at them to get heat because he's about to go, you know, cheap shot a baby face or do something. Or maybe he's looking at the crowd because he's like, I want you to buy in just a little bit longer, just a little bit longer before I make the next action. It's really, really it, his patience, you know, for somebody who was so frantic, you know, and, and inside and outside the ring, like the guy really had just that that real gift for psychology and just waiting and being patient before he'd make the next move. Because we know what the next move has to be. You know, and, and Bobby Heenan and Gorilla are selling it like she's loved him from the beginning. And I think he loves her. And everyone's waiting. Everyone's wanting it. You can hear them cheering for it. And then, uh, and they nearly miss it. She goes in and they both hug. And they play the pomp and circumstance. They play the graduation music. And I'm sorry, it's impossible not to get emotional watching it. Um, I'm going to tell you, I cry at everything. I cry at everything. Um, it, it takes the, the, the smallest thing. And I don't know, maybe it's because I'm a parent now. And like, you know, you, you just, you, you experience things with your kids. I don't know. I don't know. I'm just telling you I'm a big cry baby when it comes to everything. Um, my favorite recently was, <laughs> um, I watched uh, toy story four. Uh, my wife was cooking dinner. I came downstairs and she was like, what were you watching? I was like, oh, it was Toy Story 4. And I started to explain to her the ending. I'm not going to say anything about the ending because some of you may not have seen it. I started to explain it to her. And like, I am just bawling in tears over the last bits of dialogue in there. I'm just like, oh, my God. And yeah. So I, I, you know, I'm not making fun of anybody who cries, especially during wrestling. I love, I'll tell you what, man. If a wrestling match makes me cry, like that is awesome. That is a freaking great match. All right, forget perfect tens and you know assigning numbers of things or whatever. That's just awesome to feel something like that when you're watching wrestling. You know, like we know it's silly, but you know when it gets to the point where you're moved by it, like big pops to the AEW ten lashes spot with Cody. That was masterful the way that was conducted. I mean, you can say a lot about things with AEW. Maybe it's not all great, but that segment was phenomenal. The way it's paced out with who's coming out next to try and give Cody that extra bit of support. And I'm sorry, when his wife comes out, I'm like, oh, man, oh, man, I'm all in. You got me. You got me, Cody. But here, it's so cool because they cut to the audience. And you, <laughs> um, you see, it's and, they, and it's mostly women they're cutting to. But, boy, they're bawling. They are bawling. There's one there's one person they cut to with the thick black glasses. You I think you all could figure that out who I'm talking about. I don't know the backstory if this fan is like a, a super fan of specific or whatever. It's got like this it looks like this big yellow inflatable hat looking thing. Like maybe it's a rain hat. I don't know. I have no idea what but th- that that's the one that almost takes me out of it. I start laughing because it's just sorta of, it it reminds me almost of a character from the SNL skit where it's 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 William Shatner as you know, as himself going to a Star Trek convention and the people that approach him, but whatever. Um, it's phenomenal. It's it's an absolutely phenomenal moment. And um, you know, you see Randy and her, you see them like like I mean it's they're emotional in the ring. Pritchard talks about how like people backstage were emotional watching it from Gorilla. Um, he even got emotional even reminiscing about it on the pod, which was really I mean it's that, that's that's just always something really interesting to hear and it's fun to experience with somebody it's just like how things touch them 
And a lot of it too is you're just like, uh, if you're a fan of the product, you're like, this is like, I, this is like years in the making. Like you remember when Savage came in and you remember him being a da- a heel as a macho man. And then you remember him being a face as a, a face version of his character. And, and, but, and, but in all his instances, there was always Liz. And, you know, even when he was a baby face, there were times where it was just like, is, oh man, yeah, he's he, is Randy uh, is Randy doing right by Liz? Is he uh, you know is, is he a good guy to her and stuff like that? You know, like and especially when he's a heel, you're just like, oh, what an asshole! He's such an asshole to her. Why doesn't she go with Hulk Hogan? And um, uh, you just kind of see all that come to a really interesting conclusion. It's a really fulfilling climax because you're like, awesome! Like maybe Randy having his career ended. Now we're getting into the silliness of wrestling. Like you feel like 20 minutes ago, you came out and everyone hated you. And just because you lost the match now, all of a sudden, like you're, you're a good guy, <laughs> but Hey, it's wrestling folks. It's awesome. Um, the moment though, that really, the moment though, that's really, really cool. And I'll be honest, like as a kid, it, this didn't register with me. This was probably like viewing 51 or 52 of this match when I, by the time I was a little older, and it's the moment where she's going to go just like they would always, like when they were going to exit the ring back when she was managing him, she would, uh, you know, she would hold the ropes for him or sit on the ropes to, you know, give that room so he could get out. You know, that's what a manager would do a lot of times for their wrestler. And Savage stops her. And then he goes over to the rope and he holds it for her. And it's, it's just such an awesome touch that... Randy, uh, you know, Randy kind of rose above being the the heel that he once was, like learning from learning from the mistakes, learning from the poor attitude and the ego that he had before. And it really is, seems like this man who's been reset. Uh, you know, double turns, like you know, clearly Austin and Brett. That's a masterful double turn. This isn't this isn't a double turn because it's not like the Warrior became a heel, but it's definitely not often you have a um, a mega heel coming out of a match as a mega baby face. This just doesn't happen very often. And, um, yeah, it's, uh, uh, it's, it's really cool. Especially that image when you, and you would see it a lot in the build up to their wedding at SummerSlam 91, but it's that image of him holding her uh, on his shoulders. Like, you know, she's, yeah, she's just sitting like on his left or right shoulder and he's looking up at her and she's looking down to him and it's just beautiful. Like, it's a beautiful wrestling moment. And what's really cool is like, I mean, that's at the halfway point of the show, you know, up to that point. Like, I mean, like it's, it's been a damn good show and you could, I mean, you honestly go home after that and be completely satisfied. Like, you know, Hogan's going to come out the winner, folks. I mean, like it's even as a kid, you, you just knew that Slaughter wasn't beating Hulk Hogan. But there was something about the way this ended where it was like, man, it may be okay just to maybe go home for the rest of the night. But no, there's still there were still some good matches that come after this on this show. Seven's a seven's a good it's a good solid show. Um, let's see, where do we want to go next with this? Um, let's get into just some quick tidbits. I told you earlier, Warrior putting the, his entrance attire back on to leave. You know, wow, what a trailblazer. Because uh, I'm pretty sure I don't see Stone Cold Steve Austin putting back on the vest after an ass-kicking and then uh, doing the BMF walk back up the ramp. 
you know, the Mountie wouldn't put back on his yellow, or I'm sorry, his, uh, his red jacket, put on his hat and leave. You just didn't see stuff like this. So I just thought it was kind of funny, like, word choice. Like, did, did he not, <laughs> did he, <laughs> did he, um, did he not trust the timekeeper? You know, did he not, did he think they were going to steal his jacket? I don't know. I don't know. But it's, it was just funny. It was a funny choice. Um, here's a bit of a downer. Uh, everyone's deceased in this match now. All the performers. Um, and that's, it, it you, it's a, it, it's something really heavy that weighs on the match. Like now when you watch it, oh, you know, that moment I was just talking about with, with Savage and Liz, like it's really sad just thinking that they're gone, you know, like, and I can't remember exactly when Sherry passed right off the top of my head. I mean, we know about Warrior 2014, like literally two days after WrestleMania, uh, he's gone and has an amazing promo on Monday Night Raw. I mean, all these people taken well before their time, and it's just, it's just sad. I mean, like, I mean, you know, we live in this age now where, like, with WWE, where there is really this, and uh, every time around the, around like the Hall of Fame, and and definitely throughout other parts of the year, there's this, this really great celebration of the past for WWE, and to be able to have someone like Randy Savage out there, you know, get having those Hulk Hogan like moments. Uh, is something, you know, it's something we ne- we didn't really we never got to have, and that's really sad. But I was, it, it's you know, the older older we get now, we go back and watch some of these shows. It's impossible not to think about like how many people on a given card are deceased, and and then just looking at this match, it's like, yep, they're all gone. Um, last note here, really, cr- I mean. I'll be honest, I didn't notice this until more recently watching this match because I there obviously the the weight of this particular individual culturally was not what it is now. Um uh, watching the show, you know that there are you know there's celebrities like WWE Shop Zone himself, Willie Nelson, who is wearing everything. You know, he um he sings America the Beautiful. You've got Alex Trebek, you've got Regis Philbin, you've got Marla Maples, and you have Donald Trump. The thing I didn't realize until uh, the last few years watching this match is Donald Trump is front and center on the hard cam side, like directly in the middle of your screen watching this match on the front row. It's just wild to have that there. I mean, because, again, it has nothing to do with the, the politics of it, but now, like, you know, when you go back and you watch all this media that he pops up in whether it's a movie like hey there's little rascals or home alone 2 and you're like that's the president there's 45 right there and i know every from that from that after that moment on after that statement that's where it it, it immediately becomes divisive based upon your opinion on it it's just it's incredible because i've i can't think of a match that i've seen where like you have a celebrity right there on the hard cam that is visible for about 90% of the of the match. There he is, uh, watching the whole thing, never gets up and goes and does something else. He's there the whole time watching it. And of course, the part that made me laugh was when you see Savage and Elizabeth do the embrace, like he kind of he kind of points at him and it looks like he's he's almost laughing. And I'm like, ah well. Okay. Well glad you enjoyed it. So just something to look out for. When you watch it next time, just keep your eyes in the center of the ring and there you are. 
I think we're good. I think we're good. Like I said, the match went about 20 minutes, 47 seconds. Uh, I think this is, for a lot of the, a lot of things I mentioned here, uh, there are a lot of reasons why I think this is a perfect 10. But to boil it all down, I honestly think that this particular match, if you were not a fan of wrestling, if you'd never seen wrestling, if you, uh, I, I don't know, got dragged to, dragged to somebody's house to watch this show. If you knew nothing about wrestling, but you watched this match, I think you would enjoy it a lot. I really do. I really think this is the kind of match that non-fans could really enjoy because there's just so much, there's so much really good, really good drama. Like there's really good conflict and drama in this. And even though, even if you don't know the backstory of Randy and Liz, like you, you get caught up in it pretty easily because Elizabeth is selling big time that she is, you know, uh, that she is emotional about this. Randy is as well. So you buy in very, very, very quickly. Let's mention one more thing. I'm glad I remembered to squeeze this in there. There's uh, throughout Randy Savage's career, when people talk about who he was, what he did, you know, a lot of, there, there are a few things that pop up all the time. A, he scripted all of his matches intensely, knew every single in and out of a match uh, that, there, that, that there was. A to Z, knew, knew the match ahead of time. Not much room for uh, a lot of improvisation in the, in the actual match itself. Very intense about his character, right? Super intense about his character. Paranoid a lot of times about Elizabeth. But this was something I thought took maintaining kayfabe to another level sometime like um i i remember when i got older and i started looking at dirt sheets or not well and i well the internet you know and and trying to understand the theatricality of professional wrestling behind the scenes of this or that it was always kind of a bummer when i was like oh they were they were like separated when they did the wedding or they were not together like during that time period for a little bit and i was like oh that's sad and I, I think I'm remembering that right. Conrad, um, Conrad and, and Pritchard's talk, like the, the most revealing thing is when Pritchard says that what made that moment really emotional for a lot of people was not just the in-the-ring backstory, but the fact that Savage actually got a real legal separation from Elizabeth to maintain the appearance in wrestling, in kayfabe, that they were not together anymore. I, uh, this isn't the, all the president's men. I don't have multiple sources to confirm this, to really run with it. I'm just literally telling you that's something you can go find in this clip. Uh, I don't know the complete validity of it, but Bruce Pritchard says that this is what Randy did. And I mean, wow. I mean, that's, that is taking uh, professional wrestling in, in terms of living the gimmick to another level. You know, you heard Taker talk about in his his, uh, his pod or his episode with Austin on the Broken Skull Sessions on the network. And it's the it's the same thing. This is, this is another another level of it that I just couldn't believe. I was just like, wow, that is Im- Im- impressive, scary, maybe too much. You know, I, I, your opinions will vary on that, I'm sure. But that's how much Randy Savage took being how serious he took being a professional wrestler and and maintaining a storyline 
I got a real life separation from my wife. So incredible, incredible. Uh, miss all these people. Uh, what a showcase of all their talent. I encourage you, go out before before they sell off the network or do whatever they're going to do to it. Make sure you watch this match. Or if you don't, go to Daily Motion. I think you can see the whole match on Daily Motion if you wanted to. It's outstanding. Just outstanding. All right, to close this up, we talked about in the opening. Our goal is to have an episode for Great American Bash 92 that first weekend in March. So get... Um, be on the lookout. We'll be sending some cables to the front lines uh, about uh, when uh, or to confirm that that's going on. Also, March 6th is the deadline for best of luck spot nominations. Look at the pinned tweet on our Twitter page, and you can see, uh, you know, any of the what the hashtags are, what you what you need to to tag your post with, whether it's a GIF, whether it's a video, whatever it is, and that way we can then you know, start looking at the nominations. I think at some point we're going to have to just rename Best of Luck Spot Hall, Hall of Fame the Ryan Palmer Memorial uh, because Ryan is the, I think he's submitted over 100 nominations. I'm not positive on that number. I have to get, uh, have to, get IT to go, uh, go back and check it out. But uh, it's great. I can't, can't thank everyone enough for their participation in it considering the fact that we haven't had a lot of content to be able to get out there. So we appreciate it. March 6th is, for, is the deadline for Best of Luck Spot nominations. You can find us on Facebook, New Blood Rising Podcast. I am William Rinkin, and you can find me on Twitter at WilliamRinkin83. And you can also follow the podcast on Twitter at New Blood Pod. We will see you all hopefully soon for the Great American Bash 92. Kick out! Kick out, Cactus! Goodbye, my friend. That's a goodbye. Goodbye, Cactus. Thanks for the great memories, buddy. You're going to be missed, Cactus. Godspeed, Mick Foley.